All right. Good morning. Welcome to Mount Olive. How are you guys doing today? Just killing it, hey? Just having a great morning. That's good. So glad you are uh, with us today and joined uh, with us today. We are starting a brand new series today, uh, going through a, a short little letter called First Peter, and we've subtitled the series Steadfast. First uh, Peter, it's a, a short little letter. Uh, you can find it near the end of your New Testament, end of the Bible, and it probably takes you only about 20 to 30 minutes to read it. And we're going to be going over this letter over the next number of months. Now, as you can imagine, First Peter was written by a guy named... You guys are pretty smart this morning. You are killing it. Nice work. You nailed it. Um, so Peter was written by Peter. He also wrote a second letter called to Peter or Second Peter. And he also, uh, tradition, church tradition, uh, history tells us that he was the one who dictated the gospel of Mark to Mark and Mark wrote it down. But all the information Mark got for the gospel of Mark was written uh, or came from Peter as well. So he was a significant person in the early church. We also know that he was a disciple of Jesus. Now, uh, as you probably know, maybe you don't know, but when Jesus walked the earth 2,000 years, ago, he pulled together around him 12 disciples. Now, he had hundreds of disciples that followed him. The word disciple means follower, someone who learns from a teacher. And so there was hundreds, there was women and men and children that were disciples of Jesus, but there was 12 that he kind of pulled as special or unique that he would later call them apostles. And we're going to talk about that. But Peter was one of these 12, and of the 12, he was one of an inner circle of three, Peter, James, and John, who we know a little bit more about. So Peter was a very significant person in the early church and in Jesus' uh, uh, ministry. Um, the apostles, or, or the, the disciples, they were eyewitnesses to everything for the three years that Jesus did public ministry. They were eyewitnesses to all of his teaching, to his life, to his miracles. They were eyewitnesses of all that. In fact, they were eyewitnesses also of his death and his resurrection. All 12 were eyewitnesses of all of that except for one, Judas. He witnessed all of it except for the resurrection. He was the one who betrayed Jesus and then felt bad about it, and he never lived to see the resurrected Jesus. So this is Peter. Now, interestingly, Peter is the disciple that we know the most about. He's a disciple often that uh, throughout history, and probably if you follow Jesus any length of time, that we are often drawn to, the one that we often relate to, the one that uh, we, we often, you know, can, can, can jive with in the sense that there's just things about Peter and his life that, that we just connect to. And, and, and Peter was the one that we know the most about. And I have a theory as to why we know the most about Peter. And this is my theory. I can't find it anywhere. I don't have a verse. It's just my theory. That as the gospel writers, the New Testament writers were writing down what they would put into their, their, their good news, you know, uh, script of Jesus, as they were thinking of different stories, you know, what, we can't include everything. What are we going to include? Over and over, it's like, oh, we got to tell that one. Yeah, Peter. Oh, yeah, Peter. We got to tell that one. Oh, Peter. Yeah, we're going to tell that one. Peter was that kind of guy. And we all love a good story. And Peter made a great story. Because Peter, it seemed he was always at the front of the line. He was always at the front of the line. He was always at, you know, the, the, the center of attention. And most of the time, he was at the front of these two lines. He was either the hero or he was the zero. And there was no middle ground for Peter. 
He was always at the front of either line. And at any time there's a hero story, it's almost always Peter that's the center of it. And almost every time there's a zero story of the, you know, so as the writers were writing, I think the Holy Spirit was saying, yeah, you got to tell that when people will relate to that, right? It's just, it's just my theory, but that's what made it. And this is why we know the most about any of the disciples we know about Peter. He's engaging. He's relatable. And in some ways, Peter just lives into the things you and I wish to live into. You know those moments in your life when you kind of sit back and you're like, man, I, I just wish I could just step out and be bold and be a world changer. And Peter just kind of, he lives into the things we wish we could live into. And then he also lives into the things we know we would live into if we lived into the things we wished we'd live into. And that is the failure right? And this is often what keeps us living into our wishes or the things that we want to do is because we fear, fear the failure. And so Peter lived into both of those. And so we relate to that. This is kind of Peter's life. He kind of just has this series of nailed it and failed at moments. In fact, maybe you can relate to that because you feel like your life is a series of nailed it and failed it moments. And here's some of the way Peter nailed some moments. Let me just give you some, some of the story. Uh, and I'm going to go through these really quick, but if you don't know the rest of the story, I encourage you to read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and even the book of Acts. Here's some moments where, where Peter nailed. As far as I know in history, and I, for sure out of all the disciples, the only person in human history other than Jesus to have walked on water is Peter. This amazing moment where, God, where Jesus calls them out and in this, this act of bold faith, Peter steps out and he just nails it, right? We're like, I would want to be that. And just two or three steps in, Jesus has to save him because he's drowning. And Jesus pulls him up and he says, why did you doubt? You have little faith. It's like you failed it, right? And this is Peter's life, always at the front of the line, both lines. There's this moment where Jesus asked the disciples, who do people say I am? And they're like, ah, some say Elijah, some say John the Baptist, come back to life. And Jesus says, who do you say I am? And out of all 12 disciples, Peter speaks up because he's always at the front of the line, right? Peter speaks up and he makes this grand, amazing statement. He says, you are the Messiah, the Christ. And Jesus makes this proclamation over Peter. He changes his name from Simon to Peter, which means rock. And then he says this, and Peter, I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. It's this amazing kind of, we don't even know what that means, but we're like, wow, that'd be amazing to get the keys of the kingdom, right? And within just a few sentences, a few statements later, Peter is so, I don't know if he just is like, I got the keys. So he felt like it was his responsibility to rebuke Jesus on an issue. And Jesus says, uh-uh, you're wrong. And he calls him Satan, right? It's like this just absolute failed it moment. And then on the night that Jesus was betrayed, Jesus is going around to the disciples and washing all of their feet. And as he gets to Peter, Peter can't just be a guy. He's got to be the guy, right? And he's like, Jesus, you can't, you're my Messiah. You're my Lord. You can't wash my feet. And Jesus is like, if I don't wash your feet, you can have no part of me. Of course, he's a front of the line guy. So he's like, well, if that's the case, then just give me a whole bath, right? Just wash all of me. And Jesus, Jesus, in essence, his response is this, you don't get it, do you? You just don't understand. It's like you failed it. Again, right? These just like, 
nailed it and failed at moments. That same night, Jesus tells the disciples about how he'll be betrayed by one of them. He's gonna die and Peter stands up in front of all the disciples and Jesus and he says, Jesus, I will stand with you to the death. And he was so strong on it, all the other disciples said the same thing. Like, yeah, if he said it, we'll do it too, right? They're behind, he's at the front of the line. <laughs> and just a few hours later, he would deny he knew Jesus three times to a slave servant teenage girl. Failed it, right? Jesus, uh, Peter was one of three disciples that witnessed the transfiguration of Jesus. This moment where Peter, James, and John got to see Jesus' glorified body. And on top of that, Moses, who had lived over a thousand years earlier, and Elijah, two massive prophets in Israel history, show up with Jesus. And there's this moment where God speaks an audible voice and says, this is my son, speaking of Jesus, whom with I'm well pleased. You should listen to him. And Peter, just kind of front of the line, just steps out. He's like, we got to build three shelters where we can just hang out. This is so good. And as you read the story, there's this awkward silence. Jesus doesn't even acknowledge the statement. Again, he's like, I don't think you get it, Peter, but we're just going to keep moving on, right? Like just this failed it moment. After the resurrection of Jesus and the ascension of Jesus, Peter is the one who preached the first message in Christianity. And when he preached, 3,000 people became Christians. It's this nailed it moment for Peter. And within just a few years, Paul the apostle would oppose Peter to his face because he was two-faced. And he was, he was shunning Gentile Christians to hang out with Jewish Christians. And Paul opposed him, just this failed it moment. You see, Peter was always either the hero or the zero. He was always at the front of the line. And again, maybe you feel like your life is a series of hero moments and zero moments of these nailed it moments and these failed it moments. But here's the interesting thing. I think this is so interesting. Peter, who we look at his life and says, you are so unstable. You're just all over the place. As Peter writes his letter to, to these believers, he sums up the purpose. Here's why I'm writing this. And in all the nailed it moments and failed it moments of life, in all the ups when it's going well and all the downs when you're like, I don't know if I can continue on. And I think he looks back and says, I wish I would have had this advice when I was younger. But as an older man, he says this, and I think this is astounding. Here's why I'm writing the letter. Here's the purpose of the entire thing. He says this in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 12. He says, I have written to you briefly encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. I testify to you, if you want to know what God's truth is, I have just declared, if you want to know what the true grace of God is, read 1 Peter. Peter gives it to us. And as he has declared what the true grace of God is, he simply says this, would you just stand fast in it? Now the word stand fast, we don't really use that language anymore. But it, it means this, be unswerving, be unchanged. The way I define it, I can't find this anywhere, it's just kind of my definition because if it makes sense to me, I kind of hold on to it. Um, but I think it means this, be quick to not move. Stand fast, be quick to not move. And I think as Peter looks at his life and the nailed it and failed it moments, he's like, Sometimes I was too quick to move. And sometimes I was too quick to not continue on. 
And sometimes I just didn't stand in the true grace, but whether they're up times or down times, nailed at moments or failed at moments, as followers of Jesus, would you just stand fast in the center of the true grace I've given you? Would you stand fast in grace? And we're gonna find out through the next number of months as we go through 1 Peter, what the true grace is. And we're gonna hear it over and over and what it looks like to stand fast in it. And we're gonna start today. So if you have your Bibles, go to 1 Peter chapter one and we're gonna start in verse one. I know we started at the end, but that was a kind of a trick thing. We're gonna go back to the beginning. Okay, here's what Peter says. As he writes, he says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, as I said earlier, Peter was not always his name. His name was Simon, and after he declared, Jesus, you're, you're uh, the Messiah, the Christ, Jesus renames him as Peter, which means rock. Sometimes I think he was just a sinking rock, but he was a rock, right? Like you're unmoved. Stand fast in the grace. And so he's, his name is Peter. And he says, I am an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, I told you earlier that the 12 disciples were designated in Luke chapter 6 as apostles. And the word apostle, it's kind of like a picture of the Old Testament prophets. In the Old Testament, different prophets came and God would speak his word through the prophets' mouths. They were the mouthpiece of God. And in the New Testament, these guys were called apostles. It was, in essence, the exact same thing. These apostles spoke the word of God in, in, in uh, specifically, he was an apostle of Jesus. He was speaking the message of Christ. So you want to know what the true grace of God is? Peter's like, let me speak it to you as I speak God's word for him. This is inspired by God himself. So this is Peter. Who is Peter writing to? Well, I'm going to read to you the next like two verses. It's quite a bit. And then I'm going to summarize it because all of this can be summarized into one word, okay? Peter just kind of goes on and on and describes a whole bunch of stuff, but one word, the group he's writing to. Here's what he says. To God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Cappadocapo, failed it. I'm not good at that one. Asia and Bithynia, okay? Writing to these people who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be, obe uh, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood, grace and peace be yours in abundance. That's just a whole lot. We're like, what? So who is he writing to? One word. Could sum it all up. He's writing to Christians. This is who he's writing to. He's writing to Christians. The way he says it, he says, I'm writing to God's elect. Elect is just another term for Christians, followers of Jesus. Now, when we hear the word elect in Christianity, and maybe if you've heard that word before, this word can kind of cause a whole bunch of anxiety in us. Um, maybe it's caused anxiety for you. There's been a lot of debate over what this means, lots of discussion over what this means, a lot of confusion and raised anxiety over what this means. And some of us, we hear the word elect, and maybe you think this as well, that that Peter is saying to God's elect as though there's this elect group of people that God has preordained and it's already been decided, they're in and everybody else is out, which means if they're in and they're the elect, then is God just this divine, we're pawns and he's just moving us around? And if that's true, how do we know if we're the elect? How could we ever know? I mean, only God knows and he's just moving pieces around and, and sometimes it fills us with a little bit of anxiety. I want you to know, at least as it relates to what Peter is writing, he is not saying that. 
Peter is not saying, I want to bring up anxiety about who is the elect? Who are this special group of people? What he's saying is, I'm writing to God's elect, to Christians. And then he actually defines what he means. And he says it in the next verse. Who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood, grace and peace be yours in abundance. The elect, as he defines it, are the ones who are chosen. But again, maybe you're wondering, does that mean like the special elect that have been chosen by God? Is he talking about position? He's not talking about that. Let me read it to you in ways that may help us understand because he kind of does this. There's a comma in here and it changes everything. What he's saying is, I'm writing to God's elect who have been chosen to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. This is who he's writing to. To God's elect who have been chosen for a purpose, which means this, if you are a Jesus follower, a Christian, God has already purposed your life. You have a purpose in life. He has chosen you to be obedient to Jesus. And guess what? He knew that he would choose you for this before you were ever born. That's why he says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, before the creation of the world, God knew he would create humanity, he knew humanity would sin. He knew he would send his son Jesus to pay for our sin. And then he knew that one day, those who followed him, they would have a purpose. And their purpose would be to be obedient to Jesus Christ. And this would be made possible through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. The word sanctifying means the cleansing work of God's Spirit. God has a chosen that those who would be in his family, his elect, would be cleaned from the inside out so that they would be obedient to Jesus. That's amazing. And he knew this before the creation of the world. Those who would be in him, he would change by his spirit. And then he says this, and sprinkled with the blood of Jesus. Now we hear that in Western society. And maybe if you're not a follower of Jesus yet, you're like, Oh yeah, that just sounds weird. I mean, I was kind of interested in the faith, but if there's like some blood that's getting sprinkled around, I'm out. I don't want to be any, like, where's the blood coming from, right? Like, this is just weird. But for Jewish Christians and those of us who know the Old Testament, there is a history that brings so much significance to what he means by sprinkled with the blood. To kind of catch you up, if, you, if this is weird for you, when God created humanity and he put them on the world, there was no sin and there was no death in the world. None. It was a perfect place. It was paradise. But God told Adam, the first man, and Eve, you cannot disobey me or sin against me. If you do, you will surely die. Death would come through sin. The punishment of sin would be death. And we have death today because of sin. But also the payment for sin would be death. And so God in the Old Testament, he, out of an act of mercy, out of an act of mercy, instituted the sacrificial system because both the punishment of sin is death and the payment of sin is death. God put in place the sacrificial system, which in essence said, you can sacrifice, shed the blood of a bull, a lamb, or a goat so that you don't die when you sin. Now, again, that sounds strange to our ears in, you know, civilized Western society in the 21st century, but this was an act of mercy. And let's be honest, if you stood before God and God's like, you've sinned against me 
And there's that lamb or there's you. Whose blood do you want to be shed? Who do you pick every time? You pick the lamb, right? It's like, ah, let him die. He can die for me, right? This was an act of mercy. And over and over when people sinned and the nation sinned, year after year, day after day, sacrifices were made to cover over sin. But something happened in the first century. And one of the first instances in the Gospel of John, one of the first things said about Jesus, John the Baptist sees him as he's preaching to a crowd and baptizing. And he sees Jesus and guess what he says? He pulls the crowd together and he says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb of God. We've been sacrificing bulls and goats and lambs year after year, and it could never take away sin. But now, the Lamb of God, the perfect Lamb of God, Jesus has shown up, and He's going to die. He's going to shed His blood once and for all, for all, for all time. Wow. And we don't sacrifice stuff anymore because the sacrifice was already made. And this is what Peter is talking about. Those who are Christians, those who are God's elect have been sprinkled. They're the ones who are, have been sprinkled, covered over by the blood of Jesus. And I don't know if you're not a follower of Jesus yet, and, and this is just starting to make sense for the first time, I wanna invite you to put your faith in Jesus for you to become one of the elect, for you to be sprinkled with and receive the spirit of God. And maybe you're wondering, how do I do this? Here's what Peter would say. In fact, you can, you can read it. It's in Acts chapter two. He preached a message on this. He would say this, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Another way to say that is simply this. A, admit that you're a sinner. B, believe in Jesus as your savior, that his death covered over your sin. And C, commit your life to following him. This is what repentance is. It's saying, I'm turning my direction and I'm going God's direction. I admit I'm a sinner. Jesus is my savior. And I release my life, control of my life to him. The Holy Spirit can come in and change me, clean me, sanctify me from the inside out. And when you do that, you become a Christian, the elect, a child of God. There's a significant picture from the Old Testament regarding the sprinkled blood that I want to share with you. In Leviticus chapter uh, 14, I believe it is, the old uh, covenant, the old law stated that if anyone had an infectious disease, a skin disease that was infectious, um, they would be kicked out of the camp. They were ostracized from community. They would live by themselves. And so in Israel at that time, if there was someone who had leprosy, per se, and you saw them, you would cover yourself and you'd run and you'd just yell, unclean, unclean. In essence, this person's got to leave camp. They're out. But what happened was when you were healed, you'd go to the, the high priest and if you were indeed healed, he would sprinkle blood over you as a sign that you've been healed. And once you'd been sprinkled with blood, you were allowed to come back into community. And in sense, Peter is saying exactly that, that because of our sin, we have been disconnected. Our relationship with God has been broken. We have been ostracized from God because of our sin. And yet by the sprinkling of the blood, it has been declared over us, you are clean. You can come back into community with your heavenly father. 
So this is who Peter's writing to, to Christians, to God's elect, those who are obedient to Christ and have been sanctified by his spirit. And he knew before the creation of the world that those who would be his would be cleaned. And those who are his would be sprinkled and cleansed. So this is who he writes to, to God's elect exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And some of you are like, where is that? Okay, for all you geography people, it's pretty much right here, okay? That's modern day Turkey. Jerusalem's over here, Egypt, modern day Turkey. He just writes to Christians that have been scattered. But I wanna close with one phrase, a descriptive phrase that Peter uses regarding these Christians, regarding God's elect, anyone who had become a follower of Jesus, a descriptive word that I think runs through the entire letter of Peter. He says this, to God's elect exiles. In your Bible, you might have strangers or sojourners. Uh, Elsewhere in the letter, he uses a word called aliens. This comes up over and over and over. Now, when Peter says exiles, he may be just talking physically. Maybe these were Jewish Christians who had lived in Jerusalem and they'd been like removed from their homeland. They were living in places that were not their homeland and they were exiles. It could be, but I think it's far deeper than that. I think when Peter says you are exiles, he's describing something that's true of all of God's elect, of all Christians for all time. When he says exiles, he's saying you live in a world as followers of Jesus where you don't, you don't fully belong, where you are a sojourner, a stranger. You don't quite connect. It doesn't quite feel like home. Being a follower of Jesus changes things and suddenly you just feel like, I'm not quite at home here. I feel like in, in exile. And here's why this happens for those of us who are followers of Jesus. And you've probably at some point felt this friction, this tension of being a follower of Jesus in the world in which you live here and now. The reason this happens is because when Jesus came, he declared a new kingdom. He said, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is here. And when we step into relationship with God, when we become Christians, followers of Jesus, we step into a new kingdom, but guess where we physically still live? In this kingdom, in the kingdom of the world. And one day God will remake this world when Jesus returns. He will make a new heaven and a new earth. But as we live now, we live in the old earth, physical, but also the old earth, spiritual. And yet we've been called to a new kingdom with new values and different values from the values of this world, with a new and different worldview from the worldview of this world. And sometimes as we live in the kingdom of heaven, in the kingdom of God right here, there tends to be some friction and challenges to living. And when that friction happens, it's because Peter would say, we have been called to be in the world, but we have not been called to be of the world. We are of a different kingdom. We are called to be different from it. We have been called to be different from it. See, here's the thing. What do you do when that friction happens? as you live as an exile, as a follower of Jesus, what do you do when you feel the friction of the world just isn't quite like how I have been called to live? What do you do when that tension happens? Peter would say this, would you stand fast? 
in grace? Would you stand fast in grace? See, it's easy to stand fast in our faith when faith is easy. When God just kind of gives us everything that we're kind of wanting and asking and life is smooth. It's easy to love your spouse when it's easy to love your spouse, isn't it? It's easy to be submissive and obedient to your employer when your employer is treating you well. It's easy to be submissive and obedient to the government when, nah, you're right, it's never easy to be submissive to the government. Here's the deal. Peter is going to talk about all of those things and more. And he's going to say, here's the true grace of God. And as it applies to your situation and when the tension hits in your marriage and the tension hits in your faith and the tension hits in your job and the tension hits in our government and your life. What does it look like to stand fast and not be running ahead of God or lagging behind, but to be quick to not move from the grace that has been given us? See, in, this, in the, in the uh, letter that Peter writes, he speaks often of suffering and persecution that the church faced. And there was a tension because they were in the world, but they were not to be of the world. And we know from history that throughout history, the first three centuries of the early church, there were different times of persecution in the Roman Empire. We know in 64 AD that uh, two-thirds of the city of Rome was burned down and Nero, the emperor, blamed it on Christians. And there was a great persecution that broke out against the Christians in 64 AD in the city of Rome. We also know historians today think Nero started that fire himself because he wanted to rebuild part of the city and then he just blamed Christians anyways. And we know that in different parts of, of uh, the Roman Empire, there were times of persecution. We know from church history that the apostle Peter, just after 64 AD, just after writing this letter, was crucified under Nero and died a martyr, and he'd crucified upside down because he would not die the same way his master and Lord Jesus had died. And so we know that there was times of persecution. Now, was there always persecution? Undoubtedly not. There were times of peace for Christians among different parts of the empire, but we know there was also times of tension. So how do we relate to a letter like this? Because as much as we kind of think sometimes we endure persecution and suffering, you may disagree with me, but I think compared to the early Christians, we have not faced anything yet. Not even close. So we can't relate to their suffering and their persecution as Peter writes about it. But there are some ways we can relate. And we are called to stand fast in grace. Our society is changing. And for many generations... We, as Christians, were not a minority. We were the majority. We were so different than the early church. They had no political power, no privilege at all. And for generations, we have had both political power and privilege. In our society, if you were a Christian in Canada, it made you a majority because our country was built off of a Judeo-Christian value system. It put us, it made it comfortable in Canada. And into a lot, in a lot of ways, it still is very comfortable here in Canada. But as you know, our culture and our society is changing. And some of you are old enough to remember the times when hard times came across our country that 
People would publicly and politicians would publicly talk about praying to God for others. Now, when difficult times come, we say things, not just politicians, on social media, people say things like, I'm just sending good vibes. I'm just sending my love and affection. We don't talk about prayer. Some of you are old enough to remember the days when in every school in Canada, the Lord's Prayer was prayed. Every school in Canada. And that doesn't happen anymore. For many generations, to be a Christian puts you in the majority. And increasingly so, in our generation, our society and culture is becoming more suspicious of Christians. And some even would say we are dangerous because we are Christians. Now, are we facing persecution like the first century Christians? Not at all. But what we are finding, and maybe what you're finding, is an increasing tension and friction as you live as a follower of Jesus in a society that doesn't follow Jesus. And as we live in that society, Peter would come to us and say, would you stand fast in grace? Would you be quick to not move in what God has done? And sometimes there's this temptation because we've had privilege and power as Christians in our society. And as we lose it, there's a temptation. We need to fight for the right. We need to fight to keep our space. We need to fight to not lose our territory. And that's one option. But Peter would say, what about this? What would it look like for you to stand fast? Yeah, but we don't have privilege. The first century Christians had no privilege and they had far less political power and in 300 years, they overtook the empire. <laughs> because here's why, and Peter heard Jesus speak this. The day that Jesus, Peter declared Jesus, you're the Messiah, Jesus said this, you're right and I will build my church and the gates of hell, death and Hades will not overcome it. You cannot stop what God is doing. And so you don't have to run wild. You can just stand fast in grace. Be quick to not move. You live in another kingdom. And so we fight in different ways than the kingdom of this world. And Peter's gonna talk about all of that as we go on in this series. And he would say, you can stand fast in grace. Here's why. Because you've been chosen. You've been chosen for obedience to Jesus. Stand fast in it. You've been chosen for obedience to Jesus and you've been sprinkled and cleansed by his blood. And guess what? God knew all of this long before you were born. And he knew that those who had put their faith in Jesus would be cleansed by Jesus' blood and made clean and sanctified by the very Spirit of God whom he would send. And because of that, you can stand fast in grace. And in all the moments where you feel like you nailed it in life and you nailed it in faith, simply stand fast. In all the moments when you feel like you failed it in life and you failed it, epically failed it in faith, it's not your works that do it anyway, so stand fast in what you could not earn, but you could receive by faith. Stand fast in grace. As we journey over the next few months, we're gonna find out what it looks like to journey standing fast in grace 
as we live in the world, but we are not of it. Let me pray with you. Father, thank you for your love. Thank you that, Jesus, Jesus, you came, you're obedient to the Father. And that, God, you have declared that those who are the elect, those who have put their faith in you, are your children. Your blood, the blood of Jesus has covered them. Your spirit is in us, cleaning us. And now you've called us to obedience. Stand fast in all the grace that you have given. I pray that today we would be those who are found in the nailed it and failed it moments of our lives and of our faith to be those who come back as Peter called us to, to stand fast in the middle and the center of you and your grace for us. Pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Thanks so much for joining us today. We trust you have been encouraged and challenged in your faith journey. If you're desiring prayer, want more information on our church, want to partner with us or be involved in any way, please go to our website at mountoliveefc.com. We'll see you next time.